Today we continue, we continue our study through the Ten Commandments. We're up to the Seventh Commandment today. You shall not commit adultery. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we pray that you would give us your spirit, that we might consider rightly what you require and what you prohibit, that I might articulate these things clearly, that I might not add a single thing, that I might not take away a single thing, but that every word is true and helpful and for the edification of your people. That's what we pray today. So Father, cause us and help us to receive the word and to rejoice in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Certain things just go together. Even though they were designed separately, there are some things that didn't find their true meaning, their true glory, until they were combined, like peanut butter and jelly, like grilled cheese and tomato soup, like baseball and hot dogs, like baseball and beer, like baseball and bratwurst. I mean, you just keep going. Baseball and more baseball. It's just good. Take two things that are just fine on their own, but combine them, and you get something that's greater than the sum of the two parts. But not everything can be combined like that. In fact, some things are worse when they're put together. You can't just take two of anything and make something great by putting them together, like spaghetti and chocolate syrup. Uh, Toothpaste and orange juice, that's not good. A toddler and a clean house don't go well together. (laughs) Some things don't enhance the other. They mess up the other. They disrupt and sour and destroy each other. A good thing is adulterated when an inferior thing is added to it. In marriage, God has put together two things that go together. God has put together in marriage two things that belong together, two that were made for each other. He made a man, he made a woman, two beings designed in such a way that when they're together and when they're submitting each individually to God's purposes for them as they were created, they make something greater and more glorious than either one could do on their own. Like a violin and a bow that just go together and make something beautiful. So is the union of man and woman. But that blessed union of man and woman in marriage, that union can be soured, and it can be disrupted and destroyed when it is adulterated, when something that doesn't belong there is mixed in. In the seventh commandment, God forbids unauthorized mixtures. He says, do not adulterate. Don't put something in there that doesn't belong. All along the way in the study, we've been looking at the commandment as it was given in Exodus, but then we've also been looking at Moses' commentary on the commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. The law came to the generation who came out of Egypt at Sinai, and then 40 years later, another generation came who were going to take over the land of Canaan. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses preaches through the commandments to the people before they go in and take the land. And we've been looking at Deuteronomy as much as we've been looking at Exodus. And then when Moses gets to the seventh commandment in Deuteronomy, when he talks about adultery in Deuteronomy, as you would expect, he covers all kinds of issues that have to do with sexual immorality. What do you do when a man takes advantage of a woman? What do you do when a man or a woman sin against their own marriage? What sorts of judgments do you make on those things? Moses covers all of that between Deuteronomy 22 and 25. He covers all those things, 
But he also makes several short statements right in the middle, these little statements on forbidden mixtures. Beginning in Deuteronomy 22.9, here's what he says. Moses says, You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different materials, such as wool and linen, mixed together. And that's right in the middle of Moses' commentary on the seventh commandment. All of these other kinds of adulterations, putting things together that that Moses says don't belong together. Now, for the first two of those, mixing seed and mixing animals in a yoke, I'm not sure that anybody would have actually ever been tempted to do that. Uh, so, for example, you put grapes, you know, you put vines in your vineyard, you put barley in your barley field, you put wheat in your wheat field, and you would never be tempted to mix those together. Different plants need different kinds of attention. They all have different harvests. Uh, they, they require different husbandry to get, uh, to get a yield of your crop. You don't just go out to your field and grab a big handful of whatever, you know, sunflower seeds, walnuts, candy corn, whatever it takes, and just throw it out into the field and hope that something grows, see what sticks. So if nobody was ever tempted to actually sow wheat in their vineyard, then why was this commanded? Why did Moses say this? Why did he say, don't sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed? Why does he say that? And then he says later, he says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Who would be tempted to do that? Whoever would be tempted to do that would only be tempted to do it one time. And then after that, they would learn, oh, yeah, you don't put two kinds of animals with such different character and demeanor and strength in the same harness unless you want to plow in a circle. So if you have the donkey here and the ox here, the donkey's stubborn, he's not going to move, and the ox is plowing ahead, and he's going to move, and the donkey's going to stay still, and you're going to plow a perfect circle. Why would you, why would you even be tempted to do that? And why would Moses command something so obvious? Does it have something to do with the ox being a clean animal and the donkey being an unclean animal? Maybe. And then there was that third forbidden mixture. So don't sow your vineyard with seeds, uh, with wheat. Don't plow with an ox and a donkey together. And then, and then the third forbidden mixture is the weaving of wool and linen together. Once again, so, so that you're tracking, this is all in the commentary on the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. So Moses says, don't weave wool and linen together in the same garment. What's that about? Well, Israel was a kingdom of priests. Every man and every woman in Israel had a priestly role where they functioned as an intercessor, a worshiper on behalf of the whole world. So God, as priests, God gave them a special diet. He gave them special purity laws. He gave them a special uniform. Israel's garments were to be unified, made of one material throughout. In fact, right after he says, don't make garments of wool and linen uh, sewn, uh, sewn together or woven together, in the very next verse, Moses says, you shall make four tassels on the four corners of your garment. Those four tassels, the word is literally wings. Make four wings of the clothing with which you cover yourself. So every Israelite was not only a priest in the world and a representative of God in the world and a representative to God on behalf of the world, but every Israelite also had this uniform that he wore that had four tassels or four wings on it. So Israelites were like angels as they moved through the moved through the world. They were God's servants in the world, just like angels are. And there's also all kinds of marital imagery associated with the wings of the garment. 
When a man takes a wife, he spreads a wing over her. We've, we've seen that imagery before in the scriptures. He, he spreads his wing over her and they share one garment. Our Lord Jesus has spread his wing over us. He doesn't have wings like an eagle. He doesn't have wings like a, like a hawk. He has wings like the wings of a garment that he spreads over us. Remember Ruth and Boaz. Remember, what did Ruth ask Boaz to do? She didn't say, come here and give me some sugar. What did she say? She said, spread the wing of your garment over me. That was her way of saying, I want to be your wife. I want you to marry me. I want you to cover me with your garment. And so when he does that, they now have one covering, one garment over the both of them. In other places, we'll read in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, that a man took his wife into his tent. The tent serves as one fabric covering over the both of them. In the same chapter in Deuteronomy, in chapter 22, at the very end, I think it's the last verse, uh, it says, a man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed. Bed? No, the word is wing. We translate it bed in our English translations because nobody would know what to do with the word wing. What does that mean? Don't uncover your father's wing. But if we understand this imagery and the importance of the garment that Israel, uh, the Israelites wore and the fact that they had wings on them, to take another man's wife is not only an exposure of the woman and shame to the woman, her husband also is being exposed to shame. You uncover his wing, you uncover his nakedness, you uncover his body. So this, this unified garment symbolized sexual fidelity. Married man and woman are covered together symbolically under one garment, practically covered under the same sheet, covered under the same tent, uh, of their house or their bedroom. Their nakedness is covered under one unified covering. And so there are so many ordinances in Deuteronomy that are, that are not only about ex- not exposing your own nakedness or your wife's nakedness, but also another person's nakedness. There's, there are all these ordinances about keeping yourself covered. And the whole issue of covering and fidelity to marriage go hand in hand. You can never commit physical adultery. You can never commit fornication if you and your wife stay covered up together and you leave everybody else covered up too, then there's not going to be any nonsense. So these ordinances, you may think, well, that's very arcane and that's very foreign to the way we think and that's very um, very tedious to work through that and that's very confusing. But you understand that these ordinances about mixtures... And these ordinances about unified garments are more than uh, instruction about not mixing things you wouldn't ordinarily mix. It's more than that. Uh, So um, there's no new covenant. um, There's no new covenant ordinance, by the way. There's nothing in the New Testament about not wearing polyester and cotton together, obviously, right? There's there's no law. Um, you, You can mix paisley and plaids if you want to in the new covenant if you want to you know we'll laugh but black socks and sandals just do it i mean it's fine there's there's none of these kinds of ordinances but but why does god give these in the old covenant why does he prescribe these for israel it's like we were looking at last week with the with the ordinances dealing with murder these laws make us stop and understand the broader implication what is being said here And so you might be asking, why are we even spending time on this? Why is this important? It's because of the fact that all of God's laws, all of his ordinances, all of his precepts are based in his order and design for the world. In these laws, we see what pleases God and we learn how the world works. 
He made the world. He made humans. And just in a purely pragmatic sense, we should see that the only way for humans to flourish and be at peace in the world is to operate according to God's design for us and for the world. So in this commandment, do not adulterate, do not commit adultery, we're invited to think about what kinds of things don't go together. Specifically, what kinds of things pollute marriage? What kinds of things don't go together in marriage and why? And we're drawn by thinking of these forbidden mixtures of sowing seeds in, in the field and, and plowing with the ox and donkey together in garments that are unified and not, and not wool and, and, uh, um, and linen together. We're being drawn to think about adultery as something more than marital infidelity, which it is, but it's a pollution. It's a corruption that goes beyond the marriage to the entire society. In our generation, we don't take marital fidelity seriously at all. In fact, infidelity, marital infidelity, is something that's just joked about. Uh, marital infidelity and the, and, the, and the funny adventures that go along with adultery are at the center of lots of movies and television shows. There's so many songs about cheating and novels about uh, fantasies of, of adultery. And we think this is just something consenting adults happen to do. In fact, even the, even the word adultery, it has nothing to do with being an adult. But even as a kid, I thought, well, don't commit adultery. Well, that's something that adults do, and so it's not for me. That's adult, that's adult business. That's, that's an adult thing. But these laws about mixtures that, that, that Moses gives us in Deuteronomy point us to the fact that adultery is pollution. Adultery is mixing something inferior into something precious, something that is valuable. Something that is adulterated is something that has an inferior element mixed in with it, like mixing sand and sugar or mixing sawdust in the coffee. It's actually worse than that. It's corrupting something that is pure and doing it in such a way that it doesn't stop with marriage. Because once you start adulterating, once you start breaking covenant in marriage, you keep going. You don't just lust after bodies, you lust after lies and idols and corruption and all manner of deviance and perversion. Several, several weeks ago, in fact, maybe it was months ago, I talked about uh, the work of uh, J.D. Unwin. Some of you might remember. He was a historian who studied various civilizations and, and uh, the history of various cultures. And he saw a pattern that any culture that was able to maintain some kind of marital fidelity between one man and one woman is this culture that flourished. Human flourishing and societal flourishing in art and agriculture and architecture and music flourished. Science flourishes in a faithful culture. When you lose that fidelity, Unwin showed, by studying all history, uh, uh, so many cultures throughout history, when you lose that fidelity, you lose your society, you lose your culture. You can't keep adultery contained. It pollutes the society. Once marriage is adulterated, the whole culture is adulterated. And casual, adulterous attitudes pollute everything. We see this in the scriptures that um, a, a, adultery is not just, it's not simply focused on the union of, of man and wife. What Jesus called the first century Jews, he called them an adulterous generation. Why? Why did he call them an adulterous generation? Well, were they running around on their wives? Probably. No doubt, yes. But he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation for the way that they were seeking after signs 
when he was right in front of them working miracles and showing his glory in front of them and for the way that they were ashamed of their king. You see, their polluted minds, their corrupt minds had been adulterated in such a way that they can't understand or see or appreciate or give thanks for the truth that is right in front of them. Adultery is more than simply uh, a pollution of marriage, though it is. I, I, I want to come back to marriage in just a few minutes, but but I want to show you in the Bible how, how adultery covers and adulterous sin cover a whole range of covenant breaking and pollution. In James' epistle, James chapter 4, I was just going to refer to it, but I actually want to read it to you because I want you to hear the impact of what, of what James is, is saying here. Over in James chapter 4, um, James calls his audience adulterers and adulteresses, but listen to the context in which he says this. He says in chapter 4, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure which war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here, here it comes. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses for what? Marital infidelity? Sure, maybe that's going on, but he calls them out for their compromise, for their friendship with the world, their enmity with God. They are God's enemies. They have adulterated their faith. They've mixed in all kinds of ungodly, worldly philosophies, attitudes, and motives. The prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea all refer to Israel's idolatry as adultery. They offer polluted sacrifices to polluted gods, and they give lip service to Yahweh, and God calls them adulterers. They are polluters. The Apostle Paul, bringing this back to marriage, the Apostle Paul refers to these forbidden mixtures that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy. Paul talks about these in 2 Corinthians when he applies that unequal yoking to marriage. And he says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't, don't create a union between a believer and an unbeliever. If you wouldn't put this clean animal and this unclean animal to work on the same plow, then why would you establish the most intimate of relationships with an unbeliever? I always love to see when the Bible interprets the Bible and see how the Bible uses the Bible, it, it so much better equips us to understand what's being talked about. It, it's very easy to get lost and bogged down in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you wonder why in the world these things are in here. What, what, are the, what do they have to do with us? But, but it's easier if you remember when you're reading about things that have to do with plants and animals, you're probably being told something about people. In all these laws about plants and animals, we're reading about us. So all of these mixtures that Moses speaks of really aren't at the root about mixing seeds and animals and textiles. The subject is adultery, and the prohibition is mixing things into covenants that are not part of the design, and preeminently mixing things into marriage that are not part of the design, which doesn't stop with marriage. It ends up polluting the whole world. It pollutes the environment. It pollutes the society. When God designed marriage, he made something very simple and very straightforward that we have always worked at polluting. We've always worked at messing up. 
But just about any question we have about what marriage is and who are the parties eligible to be married, it goes all the way back to the garden. Genesis 2 is our foundation for sexual ethics and our definition of, of marriage flows out of what God said at the beginning. Consider for just a few minutes what God did when he designed marriage in the garden. What does God do first for Adam when he says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. What, is, what does God do next? Well, he parades all the animals before Adam for Adam to name. But among all the animals, there was not a helper comparable to Adam. No helper is available to Adam in the animal kingdom. There's no beast or bird or fish that can participate in marriage. He's not going to be one flesh with an animal. So God put Adam into a deep sleep and took a rib from his side. And from it, God made woman. God could have made another man, just like the first one, to be his helper. Certainly another man might have understood exactly what Adam thought and how Adam worked and how Adam felt. But another man could never be one flesh with Adam. That was not God's design. A man is not an adequate helper for man. Thus, homosexuality is forbidden. It's prohibited by God's design. And then after um, God creates and makes the woman, Adam wakes up and he breaks into song over the woman. And he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Man is not going to find his partner at home. He's going to have to leave home and go find her somewhere else. Now, uh, one of the great Sunday school questions, obviously, out of necessity, Adam's sons are going to have to pair with Adam's daughters. But after the first generation, brother and sister unions are not necessary. And the pattern holds throughout the Bible. You leave home to find your beloved. The patriarchs all go great distances to find their wives. So incest is prohibited. And then God says the two will become one flesh. The man and the wife together in the garden, we read, are both naked but not ashamed. Why should they be ashamed? They are the only two people in the world. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's no one else to uncover their nakedness. They are under one covering of the garden at that time. But it's only two of them. God doesn't give Adam multiple wives. His design is for the two to become one. And those sinful men in various situations are always deviating from that design. At creation, polygamy is forbidden. And if the two are one, then there's no room for a third. There's no room for a fourth, even for a weekend, even for a night. Polyamory is forbidden. So from the beginning, to put it all together, bestiality is forbidden. Homosexuality is forbidden. Incest is forbidden. Fornication is forbidden. Polygamy is forbidden. Polyamory is forbidden. All of these are adulterated relationships. These are all forbidden mixtures. And if you eliminate all of these, then you eliminate marital infidelity. Well, there's so much, there's so much more information. There's so much more commentary in Deuteronomy on the various applications of this commandment. And lots of things to explore, but I'll leave you to your own study. If you want to look at uh, Deuteronomy 22 through 25, and you have any questions, let's get together and talk about it. Uh, that's all the commentary on the seventh commandment there in Deuteronomy. There are a number of things that raise a lot of questions about what happens when the covenant is broken, the commandment is broken. But I want to spend the rest of my very short time now, I want to spend my, the rest of my time considering how we keep this commandment, do not commit adultery, and I had a whole list of exhortations. I had a lot of things to say about marriage. And I'm, gonna, I'm just narrowing it down to just one thing this morning. One exhortation for you 
as you commit in your heart to keep this commandment before God, one commandment, one exhortation, guard your heart. This is how we keep the seventh commandment. Guard your heart. Remember what Jesus said about this commandment. Now, by the way, don't check out because you think you know what I mean by guard your heart. You don't get to check out right now because I'm going to say something that I don't think is what you expect about this. So don't go to sleep. Jesus said about this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery for her in his heart. Whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. That's how Jesus preaches this commandment. Obedience to God's law here is not only a matter of external obedience, but it's also a matter of how your heart is oriented. Your passions, your desires, the secret counsels of your mind all come into seventh commandment keeping. And the question is, the question that Jesus presents is, are your heart and mind oriented toward loving what God loves, or is your heart and your mind and are your affections set on loving what God hates? Do you set your affections on things that are bound for glory or things that are bound for destruction? As Jesus says, adultery is not only a sin committed outwardly with the body, adultery is an inclination of the sinful human heart, which means your heart, men and women, men and women, your heart must be disciplined in proper affection because adultery begins in the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. If you are like me, you've read that verse before, you've heard it quoted, keep your heart with all diligence, and you think of your heart as if it were this precious jewel, you know, this, this delicate little flower. Your heart is this little, this little fragile teacup, and your job is to guard your precious little teacup of a heart and make sure it doesn't get chipped. Make sure it doesn't get broken. Don't, don't let any bad things, don't let any bad things get to your heart. Protect that precious little thing. Protect your, pee-picking little heart. You know, your, your bless your little heart. Protect it. But how do other verses in the Bible describe our heart? How does Jeremiah describe our heart? He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Does that sound like a teacup? Does that sound like a little butterfly? Remember what Jesus said. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, Jesus says, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Jesus says these are the things which defile a man, the things which come out of your heart. Your heart is not fine china. They say the heart wants what the heart wants and who can deny their heart and just follow your heart and follow your dreams and you can't deny a person what they want. Well, think about that in terms of what Jesus just said and what Jeremiah just said. Your heart is not innocent. Your heart is not pure. Your heart is not fine china. Your heart is a sewer. Your heart and my heart is a septic tank because Jesus says your heart defiles you. And you are either governed by your heart or you are diligently taking dominion over your heart. 
There's nothing in between. You're doing one or the other. You're either being governed by what comes out of your heart or you are diligently keeping and protecting your heart. Read, read Proverbs 23, uh, 423 again. Proverbs 423. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Where does your lust come from? Where does your adulterous impulse come from? It comes from within you. It comes from your heart. And the Proverbs say, keep your heart. Guard your heart. Not so that, not so your heart is hurt. You don't build a fortress around your heart to make sure your heart isn't hurt. You guard your heart so it doesn't hurt anybody else. Your heart is a rabid junkyard dog. Your heart is a crazed baboon that is set on destruction. You have to discipline and correct and keep your affections and your emotions. Submit your will to Jesus. Pray for the grace and strength of the Holy Spirit to conform your affections to what pleases God. If you don't keep your heart on a chain, in a cage, disciplined, if you don't keep your heart, your feelings, your emotions will inevitably spill out all over the place and they will hurt other people and they will destroy your life. But Jesus said one of the desires that spills out of our hearts is the impulse to adulterate, the fixation, the lust for forbidden mixtures, a man or a woman who isn't yours, any of the other perversions I mentioned earlier. And we are attracted to, to those things we desire those things because of the unbridled, undisciplined, ungrateful impulses that are within us. Our sins in these areas, understand our sins of fornication and heart adultery and lust, our sins are not the result of some inescapable external temptation. We don't sin in these directions with our hearts because there is this impossible weight of temptation outside of us and we cannot help but submit to it. It's because of what is in us. The way that someone dresses doesn't cause you to sin. The way that they talk to you, if somebody gives you attention, that's, that's, not, that's not why you sin. The availability of perverse images on the internet is not why you sin. If your heart were disciplined, if you loved what God loved, if you were grateful for what God gave you, you would not be inclined towards sin. Have you ever been tempted to drink water out of a pothole in the middle of the road? Has that ever been attracted to you? Have you ever looked at a... Well, I try to think of something that's not too disgusting. <laughs> have, you, have you ever thought about eating a possum? Has that ever sounded good to you? Have you really been attracted to that? Why? It's because there's nothing in you that's attracted toward that. It's not attractive to you. That desire is not in you. So why do you love what God hates? Why are you attracted to all forms of adultery and fornication? Why is it? It's because you haven't trained your heart. You haven't kept. You haven't guarded. You haven't disciplined your heart. Do that work. Keep your heart with all diligence. This is an active, ongoing, daily fight. Keep your heart with all diligence. Do that work. Resist the devil. Grow in gratitude. Grow in tenderness toward your spouse. And keep this commandment. Guard your heart. Quickly, many of you are not married yet. And you look forward to being married one day. So just a word to you from today until the time you say, I do, your job is to keep your heart with all diligence. 
Your job is to discipline your own heart and your own mind and to keep from polluting yourself in such a way that you're going to bring adulterations into your marriage later. You keep the seventh commandment by not spoiling your future marriage and by not spoiling other people's marriages. You keep the seventh commandment with a commitment to purity and a rejection of forbidden mixtures, adulterations of any kind. Learn to love what God loves. Do not be attracted to or enamored with things that you know God hates. Here's the good news. It sounds like bad news at first, but it's good news. None of us, not a single one of us in the sound of my voice has any strength or power to do this all by ourselves. This strength is present only in lives that are being transformed by the renewing power of God's Holy Spirit. The only remedy against the pollution of society that begins with the pollution of marriage, the only remedy is to find our soul's satisfaction in the unadulterated gospel, the pure gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's righteousness alone. That is the only hope. That's the only chance. That's the only remedy. That's the only way. And I pray with you that we would all submit ourselves to God's Holy Spirit and be transformed and we would be changed and thus keep our hearts and not commit adultery. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your strength and your power. We are uh, so uh, weak and easily tempted and easily distracted, and we are uh, undisciplined and untrained, and we ask for your great strength and your mercy to help us to love what you love and reject those things that you have marked out for destruction. So strengthen our marriages, turn our hearts toward our wives and husbands, Keep our children pure, we pray. And we do this because we love you more than anything. We love you more than life itself. So we want to live lives that are pleasing to you in all things. And we ask for this grace in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.